You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I am Nicole, a member of the committee staff. Legal podcasts always have caveats, so here is ours. Your other moderators today are national security attorneys who are here as individuals and not on behalf of their agencies or firms. You can find more about the Standing Committee online or join our listserv at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. And I'm Yvette. We're here to discuss national security issues in the news and give you critical baseline information whether you've been practicing national security law for years, you're a journalist trying to understand the law, or you're a non-lawyer eager to improve your understanding of national security issues. And I'm Melissa. The ABA Standing Committee is comprised of seasoned national security lawyers and law professors. The committee has spent the past 55 years keeping lawyers and the public informed and aware of the most pressing questions in national security law today. Join us at one of our monthly speaker programs or at our annual conference on November 1st and 2nd, 2018 to hear more about what's happening today and what will happen tomorrow on these important issues. We deliver sober, well-reflected, unbiased updates on the hottest topics in the world of national security law. We're proud to be unbiased! Huge. So let's get started. During the podcast, you can find links to articles on today's topic at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity and in the notes to this podcast. In addition, you can find links to other books, learned treatises, and academic articles on today's topics on our website. At the end of this podcast, please drop us a note at NationalSecurity at AmericanBar.org or on Twitter at ABANatSec. We welcome your feedback. All right, today our guest is a real treat. Not only did he have a long and distinguished military career, but he is also the current executive director of the American Bar Association, and our guest is Jack Rives. Jack, we're honored to have you here today. Well, thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be here. I'm especially excited to give the audience a few details about your background because we have a professional connection. You were the Air Combat Command Staff Judge Advocate at Langley Air Force Base. At the same time, I was a brand new lieutenant, a baby butter bar, at my very first duty station. And then you were the Judge Advocate General of the Air Force when I became a JAG myself. You signed my paperwork, Small Air Force. So you're telling me I made at least one wise decision. Indeed. Wow. Um, But I'm getting ahead of myself. You're from Georgia, and you got your bachelor's degree and your law degree from the University of Georgia. You commissioned into the Air Force, and you worked as an assistant staff judge advocate at your first duty station at Griffiths Air Force Base, New York. No longer an operation, but that's okay. (laughs) Uh, And you did virtually every possible assignment as a military lawyer on your way up the ranks. You're a prosecutor, you're a defense counsel, and you're a judge. You also led legal offices as a staff judge advocate, provided advice to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, a lot of people have heard of him, as his deputy legal advisor. And you were the number two uniformed lawyer in the Air Force before you got the top spot as the Judge Advocate General or TJAG. You were the first three-star uniform lawyer in the military, and you managed about 2,600 lawyers, including me, before your retirement in 2010, which, no joke, is the year that I medically retired. So we're basically twins. (laughs) Yeah, we are. Separated at birth, I suppose. (laughs) Um, But then you started on your second career. On Law Day, May 1st, 2010, you came to the ABA as the executive director. 
And here, you're overseeing the development of our strategic goals, our budget, our programs, policy activities, and you're taking care of our 400,000 members. Yeah, I tend to tell people I'm the guy with about 400,000 bosses. (laughs) And that's um, a terrifying way to think about it. Yes, lawyers have lots of opinions. 400,000 of them will have 400,000 opinions. Uh, If not more. So um, I'd love to kick this off by just kind of switching the order a little bit and asking your advice for young lawyers first, having laid down that, you know, career. I'm sure you're full of advice for people who who are considering careers in the JAG Corps. Yeah, in my case, um, I'd had an ROTC scholarship at the University of Georgia, and I was looking forward to serving four years. The one thing I was positive about is I was only going to serve four years. But I kept enjoying what I was doing. It also helped me to stay in because I was assigned seven times the first nine and a half years I was in. I went from Georgia to New York to Korea, Greece, the Philippines, D.C. the first time. So all of those assignments gave me a good variety of things to do. During the time I was in the military, I went to more than 50 countries in every, in every state. So I really did have a good diversity of experiences, and it was, uh, it was a great experience. That's amazing, and they used to say all the time, you join the military, see the world, (laughs) you're the poster boy. Can you tell us what your favorite assignment in uniform was? Yeah, people assume it's a cop-out when I tell them I really did enjoy all my assignments, but my first few assignments were places I never would have thought I wanted to go to, but I thoroughly enjoyed them. Uh, A positive attitude is probably worth a lot, but coming from Georgia where we may get one snowfall a year, my first assignment in January was to go to upstate New York where we had 183 inches of snow that year. <laughs> My first week up there, the windshield was 70 below every night. And so I really enjoyed the assignment, though. It was different than what I was used to. I learned how to ski and especially night ski. It was more like skiing on ice in upstate New York than the western snows are. From there, I went to Korea, and I volunteered for Korea in part because you got an assignment of preference leaving there. But I thoroughly enjoyed Korea. It was um, it was a very operational assignment. We during the twelve months I was there, I personally prosecuted thirty court martial cases. Wow! And so it was a very heavy military justice workload or disciplinary workload. From there, my assignment of choice was Athens, Greece, which was a great assignment, and it had about the same military population as my base in Korea. But the Greeks would retained jurisdiction over every case, and so there were no court-martial cases when I was there. But I did uh, spend more than 100 days in Greek court as a trial observer. So I got some great experiences, and from there I went to the Philippines, where I was uh, lead defense counsel for the Western Pacific, Korea, Guam, Japan, and the Philippines, and was involved in felony cases, everything from murders to huge drug offenses to, you know, name your felony And we had those, but um, I really did have uh, a lot of really good experiences in the military. So all the young uh, lawyers out there who are considering going to the JAG Court, it's a great place to get some practical experience right out the gate. Probably not like a lot of my colleagues who went right into law firms, and they spent a lot of time writing letters and, you know, maybe editing motions, but you're the one who's prosecuting and defending right away. Right. Yeah. Early on, I was able to get into uh, a lot of court-martial cases. Uh, I'd been in the base office for just a few months before I became a defense counsel. And in my first year and a half in the Air Force, when I was assigned to the base in upstate New York, I, I had cases in seven different states in the northeastern United States defending people in the uh, tended to be the more serious court-martial cases. So I got some really good experience. 
That's awesome. All right, so let's talk about one of the high-profile issues that you've dealt with. We've heard a little bit about this before, um, and it's back in the news, as you know, uh, during uh, Gina Haspel's uh, confirmation hearings, and that's the enhanced interrogation techniques that happened in the post-9-11 world. And we've recently discussed this topic with John Rizzo to get the CIA's perspective during his tenure there. But for the TJAG um, and other uniformed lawyers, you had a different take, didn't you? We did. We, uh, we were looking at this as uh, our soldiers, sailors, and Marines were trained in a certain way, and the American values should reflect the highest values. We, the JAG community, believed that international law, treaty obligations, the United States Constitution, all required that we not engage in things that as you described it euphemistically, as enhanced interrogation techniques. You know, it's all in the eye of the beholder, I guess. If you were at the other end of it, you would not call that an enhanced technique, but you would question the legality of it. And the JAG community did question whether some of the things that were reported were lawful, and we had some serious problems with it. When we testified, uh, there were people in the administration who didn't believe we should have spoken openly about it, but as a part of the confirmation process for uh, flag rank generals and admirals, you're asked by the Senate Armed Services Committee, if you're asked to give your personal opinion, do you agree to do so? And of course the answer is yes, otherwise you won't be confirmed. And so if they asked us what's the policy on a given issue, we would give them the administration policy. If they said what is your personal view on the legality of something, we would give our personal views. And that made us unpopular with some uh, in the hierarchy in the Defense Department at the time and in the administration. We had a number of meetings. When I was uh, Judge Advocate General, we, my colleagues and I from the other services, the senior JAG community, testified probably a dozen and a half times over about a six-year period. Um, historically, senior JAGs will serve an entire career and never testify and rarely go into Capitol Hill. But they were interested in getting our opinions on the Military Commission Act, um, and we helped shape the Commissions Act of 2006 as well as 2009, and especially on en enhanced interrogation techniques and where we believe the lines should be drawn. Our concern was, in part, the golden rule. We, we're Americans, and we should live by the highest standards, and that's what, how we expected our people to be treated. If we were going to engage in tactics like that, how could we protest when our people were mistreated. So we believe the right way to do it was to treat people with dignity and respect, and if they deserve to be punished as a result of a prosecution, then you do the prosecution first and you do the punishment as a part of the, the result of the prosecution. But there's a practical feature of that principle that you obviously held dear to, which is we don't want it done to our guys. Yeah. Over, overseas, because that tends to create a tit-for-tat and an escalation that's completely... Absolutely dangerous to our men and women yes. in the armed forces. So the counter-argument to that is always the ticking time bomb scenario, right? It's the, well, we've got to use these techniques. It was the it was a very frightening climate in the post-9-11 world. We didn't know when or whether or how intense the next attacks would be. And what was your response to that? Yeah, we're sympathetic to someone who has an honest, exigent circumstance where it's a ticking time bomb, for example. Anyone who does that should know that it's a violation of the law, though. And if they do that, they can present their case and say, here's why I did it, and maybe get a minimal punishment, but it doesn't mean it's not a crime. And that's what we told people. It doesn't change the criminality of the conduct. 
you need to know that. But if you're willing to do it because the stakes are so high on the other side, I would suspect maybe you get a jury nullification or you get a very light punishment, but it doesn't mean you did not commit the crime. There were some in the administration who would articulate the basis that the president could tell you to do it, and it's not criminal if the president tells you to do it. We were of the view that uh, we respected the office of the president, certainly, and the president is commander-in-chief, but if it's an illegal order, you're obliged not to follow it. And that's something that military members are just trained um, constantly about not following illegal orders. You're supposed to be even the, you know, even a a private that you give a a weapon to is supposed to know what orders are legal and illegal and whether or not to follow them. And, And that's what was especially bad about the situation. We wanted people to be trained properly. And Americans, since the Vietnam War, we've always done law of war training, law of armed conflict training. We would tell people we're Americans, we go by these standards. And Abu Ghraib was an example of young soldiers who believed this is the global war on terrorism. There are no holds barred. We can do what we want because we have these people in captivity and, and so we can torture them. And that was not true. That was not accurate. And they never should have believed it. And the debilitating effect that has on training young soldiers, sailors, and airmen, but especially the soldiers who are most in contact with prisoners of war, um, caused a number of problems. And it could cause problems with the reciprocity that you spoke of earlier, where we're concerned about how our people will be treated, and we need to uphold the highest standards. So we also want to talk about your current job as the executive director of the American Bar Association. We referenced in the introduction what you do at a very high level, but could you tell us more about what a day at work might look like for the ABA executive director? Yeah, no matter what's on my schedule, the day, a day at work is unpredictable. Um, I, I do uh, my best to be responsive to people. I, in both my last job in the military and also my current job with the American Bar Association, I tend to go through about 300 emails a day. And one of the things I do is respond quickly. I'm not a very good typist, so I'll, I'll write succinctly, but I'll at least acknowledge receipt of all emails and, and I'll respond to everything the same day I get them, no matter what time of day. I finally can get to them. And I tell people if I don't respond the same day you sent it, assume I didn't receive it. Almost always you do receive emails, but not always. Um, The leadership of the American Bar Association, whether it's our officers, board of governors, or or, uh, other bar leaders around the world are frequently in contact, and we want to be responsive and help them with the issues. We have a very good staff at the American Bar Association. Uh, with about 400,000 members, our staff of about 900 is large by many measures, but the reason it's that big is in the American Bar Association, people are the programs, and we couldn't run the programs without having people to do it. So a typical day may have a number of things on my schedule, and then it's the crisis management things that will come up as the day goes on. And we're involved in uh, all of the big issues that are affecting both our profession and our association right now. This really is an inflection point for for the profession and for the American Bar Association. And by inflection point, I mean if you, you know, you can always say the times are interesting. And there's the Chinese, uh, it's either a blessing or a curse, depending on how you want to take it. May you live in interesting times. (laughs) People always live in interesting times. But we're in a genuine inflection point, is what I've observed for a while, where... 50 years from now, people will look back 
at things we do and decisions we make and say either they put us on the right path or that was the, be- the real beginning of the end for the profession, for the Bar Association. We're facing some critical issues. Technology has changed the world and has changed our profession. How are we going to adapt to it most effectively? And for the profession, how do we really show the value proposition to people who are interested in the profession but wonder, why should I join the American Bar Association? Well, we have a motto at the end of every podcast, and it is that social networking is not really networking. (laughs) There's more to that story, I'm sure. (laughs) Well, given the inflection point and the 400,000 members of the ABA and all their different opinions, what would you say is the greatest challenge leading the ABA? The, uh, the greatest challenge is proving our value proposition. We, uh, we've had a declining number of dues-paying lawyer members in the American Bar Association for the last 12 years. Almost every year, fewer dues-paying lawyer members than the year before. I I frequently host guests in our headquarters office in Chicago as well as here in D.C. And a few months ago, I was hosting some judges from Italy. And I went through the standard, the American Bar Association was founded in 1878 by 100 lawyers from 21 states in the District of Columbia. And now we have over 400,000 members. And their wow moment was, there are more than 400,000 lawyers in the United States. And I said, no, there are more than 1.3 million lawyers in the United States. So then the wow moment was, well, how can you be a lawyer in America and not be a member of the American Bar Association? And I said, that's my issue and that's my concern. (laughs) And so it's the value proposition. You know, why should I be a member of the ABA? For three decades now, new bar admittees were given a free membership in the American Bar Association. You could argue that if you're giving something free, then... You don't really notice, you don't care, you may not even realize you're a member, and and you don't have to get your money's worth because it didn't cost you anything. We're looking at a new membership model that could take effect September 1st, 2019, which is our fiscal year 20, and under the new membership model for the first time in decades, new bar admittees would pay a fee, and it would be $75 a year. Right now, law students have free membership, and we have more than 100,000 law students in the American Bar Association. But we also have about 25,000 who pay $25 a year for a premier membership in the law student division. We have become convinced that if new bar admittees are paying $75 a year, they're going to want to get their money's worth. And they're going to see, if, is it worth $75 a year? And we can show them how we do things to help make them a better lawyer as well as help the profession. So that's how we can easily prove the value to them. And the idea is if you're a law student who sees the value of being in the American Bar Association, you're a new bar admittee, you're a young lawyer who sees the value, you're going to stay a dues-paying member for the next 50 years. Yeah, and the other advantage, of course, to young lawyers, I would say, is you learn where the jobs actually are because you may imagine they're in one spot or another, but they're in many more places than you imagine. Absolutely. Yeah, and and not to be too self promotional in this podcast, um, but I you can do that. (laughs) (laughs) But um, we have several students come to our annual conference November, and I would I would say to a person, they all talk about how beneficial it is for them to interact with seasoned members of the profession, to watch our panelists present on national security um, law issues of the day from, I think last year we had from the Arctic panel, which was really mm, well right. attended, and also the, um, the AI 
the um, pr private national security uh, law panel was very um, interesting and always the review of the field too. So, Yeah, and that's we, we want to show the value proposition to everyone, every lawyer in the country really, and we begin with law students. We've, we've had a much more uh, intense staff with the Young Lawyers Division in recent years and the Law Student Division. We have a lot of very good programs for the law students and the young lawyers, and we want to show them from early on, okay, this is it's not your grandfather's American Bar Association, but we understand how to do this effectively for you. We can help make you a better lawyer. A few years ago, I wondered why the American Bar Association job board was so anemic. It only had a few dozen possibilities on it. Now, ABA Career Central has thousands of jobs. It should be the best job board for lawyers in the world, certainly in this country. And we've improved it in recent years, and it really is very good, led, led by a young lawyer from Michigan, and she, she does a great job. We want to help, especially for young lawyers. They appreciate the profession, but they're at the front end of learning about the profession. How do we make them a better lawyer? How can we help them with contacts? How can we help them with job prospects? And those are things we can do in addition to help them with the specialty areas of the law as well as the big areas. Our Center for Professional Responsibility, right now we charge dues of $100 a year uh, in order to have full access for, to the ethical information in the profession. One of the changes we're looking at with the new membership model is making the Center for Professional Responsibility membership available to all members of the ABA at no cost. It's a part of the, the price you pay for membership. So we're looking at a number of changes to prove the value proposition of membership in the American Bar Association. So it's crystal clear why a young lawyer should join the ABA. Why should a more seasoned professional be a member from year to year? Well, it begins uh, with helping the profession. You know, the more members we have, the better we can speak for the profession. When, we, when we're on Capitol Hill with ABA Day, we, we, have, uh, we tend to have lawyers from every state and, and um, territory in the United States, and they go to Capitol Hill and they articulate the issues that our leaders have told us we should focus on in any particular year. So we help, we help the profession. We also help them become better lawyers. If you were, you know, it's one thing to say I've been doing tax law for 30 years, but if you say I provide continual legal education instruction, for the American Bar Association in this area of tax law, that's a different sort of credential than just saying, I've been doing it for a long time and showing you're current in it. And that's what we do as well. Our continual legal education is the best in the world. It's, it's a high end, put on very effectively at, at very modest prices. You can get enough mandatory CLE in any jurisdiction through the free courses we offer. And all of our courses are very good, very effective. Our website is being substantially upgraded, and we're going to have the new website launching by the end of July, so just over a month from now. Um, so you can you can get up-to-date information. It's convenient. It's easy to find, and especially on a mobile device, which is how most people access information now, you'll be able to get up-to-date information from the American Bar Association. So we help individuals become better lawyers. The seasoned lawyer can stay up to date in her or his areas of specialty. They can go into new areas. They can look at the job board and maybe go to a place that they haven't lived and but they've, they've wondered about. So we can help anyone with those opportunities as we show the value proposition of the American Bar Association. 
Well, I'm sold. Yeah, I'm sold. Uh, one <laughs> of the other things is, quite, quite clearly, uh, one of the other things is you send out things like cyber notices right. and the like. And let's be frank, I mean, we're concentrating on the law. We're not always thinking about what sort of vulnerabilities are out there, where the threat vectors are. So this is helpful. All these basic things that you need just on a day-to-day basis, you get. If yeah, you do. You, you definitely do. We have a new uh, insurance program, speaking of cyber, and, and we offer really good products highly rate, from highly rated carriers at, at uh, extremely competitive prices. And cyber is one of those areas that people know they should be concerned about, but very few people really appreciate the dangers. They just know they need to be concerned and what can they do about it. Uh, it's like continuity of business. A lawyer needs to at least think What's going to happen if I'm denied access to the location where my building is or if I have an attack and I can't access my electronic files? What are the consequences of that? Well, the first step in the right direction is to ask yourself the questions, what would I do? And then you're beginning to think about it. You're beginning to plan. The American Bar Association does great work for both disaster preparedness and disaster response. The young lawyers for decades have helped with responses to natural disasters, whether it's um, a building being bombed or whether a building that's uh, destroyed by a hurricane. We help people respond to that, but even better than just responding is to prepare for it. And we can help people with all, we can help our lawyer members with all of those things. So this is a relatively unique way to reach some of our members or soon to be members. What's the one message you have for them? Enjoy the practice of law. I was meeting with some law students earlier today, and they were fearful if they had, were going into the right profession. And I, well, part of my message to them is law school teaches you a different way of thinking, of analyzing issues, and whatever you do with that education, you're going to be better off. Whatever you do with that, and especially the practice of law is great. The American Bar Association is the big tent. When I was applying for the job a little bit over eight years ago, I, I read that the American Bar Association has more than 2,200 entities. And I was thinking, someone has a typo here. It's 22 entities, maybe 220. After I'd been on the job for a few months, I had, a, I had the staff do a computer run. And of course, 2,200 entities is not correct. We have more than 3,500 entities. <laughs> so the American Bar Association is the big tent. And wherever you may have an interest, there are people who can help you with it. Um, I came back from the Board of Governors meeting on Friday evening in Denver with a lawyer here in town who is 87 years old. He's still totally active. He's one of the world's preeminent intellectual property attorneys. He really is an authority. He loves the American Bar Association. And he loves to talk to young lawyers or people who are interested in the profession about what he does. So imagine being mentored by someone who's been doing it for 65 years and still has a lot of energy and enthusiasm. So the profession of law is a great profession. Uh, occasionally some people give it a bad reputation, but overwhelmingly lawyers are good people who help society, who help people in need, and really do advance the interest of society in a very positive way. And protect the Constitution, all the important things that we hold yes, dear as Americans, you know. <laughs> all right. Well, it's been a pleasure to have you here today, Jack. It feels a little weird to call you Jack. but <laughs> It feels a lot uh, weird for me. <laughs> <laughs> sure. All right. But thanks for your career in national security law and for being our leader here at the ABA. We appreciate it. Uh, we hope you'll come back and do another episode on a topic of your interest this time pertaining to national security law. 
Um, we hope you get a chance to listen to this podcast. Um, for anybody who is interested in sort of following in Jack's footsteps, learning something, jumping on this train here, which is not social networking. You actually talk to people. You copy <laughs> with them. It's a face-to-face. Email Jack, because he will respond yeah, back to you. Yeah, <laughs> the same day. I, I will. Uh, same but day. It's, you know, so I'm, I uh, appreciate uh, the three of you um, having the interest in this area. I am a fan of podcasts. It's a good way to catch up on information. And sometimes I do. I'm sports heavy with the podcast I listen to. So uh, this is a great way to get information out. And I, it was a pleasure for me to participate and to get to see all three of you today. So thank you. And thanks to our listeners. Thank you for joining us at National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security for the American Bar Association. Tune in again soon for our next episode. So right now, if you're out there thinking about how much you want to practice law in a skiff and have to pop vitamin D all day, or you're just smart enough to know that national security law gives you a front row seat to history, and you don't want to watch on the sidelines or watch life from a distance, then join us again next time for National Security Law Today, brought to you by the American Bar Association's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Because listening to a podcast is informative, but social networking isn't really networking. Show up at one of our breakfasts, lunches, or conferences, and don't miss the annual review conference in Washington, D.C. on November 1st and 2nd. And check us out at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. Follow us on Twitter at ABA NatSec and visit our Facebook page. Don't forget that every serious national security lawyer has one great book on their desk, the 2017 U.S. Intelligence Community Law Sourcebook, available for purchase on our website. From all of us here, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.